0: And find with me psalm four psalm four psalm four it 's good to see you uh, this morning in particular if you 're visiting we 're happy to have you. Uh, let me go ahead and give an advertisement uh, this evening at five we 'll be back here and we will have our monthly q and a night normally the second Sunday, but we put it off a week because of the meeting now uh, the last couple of times, some of you have kind of gotten on to me because I sometimes I'll preview, I'll give a little teaser for what we're going to talk about, but I haven't done it in the last couple of weeks, kind of just because I didn't have a clever way to do it. So I'll give you what you want this week. Um, I'll tell you exactly what we're going to talk about. All right, so tonight we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the Tetragrammaton. So now that we have that squared away, you know exactly what we're going to talk about. I'll see you at 5. Psalm 4 and verse 1. Psalm 4 and verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. You remember the story of Chicken Little? I'm sure you do. Chicken's walking through the forest one day and an acorn falls from a tree and hits her on the head. And what does Chicken Little say? She says, well, I better be sober and judicious. better not rush to hasty conclusions. I better uh, conduct a full investigation to ascertain the sequence of events that led to me getting hit on the head. No, that's not what she says. She runs around telling everyone who will listen, the sky is falling. And then an hysterical mob gets whipped up among all the animals of the forest because of Chicken Little's hysteria. Eventually, they find someone who seems sympathetic to their worries. who's going to use their hysteria for his benefit. They find a fox, and he seems to have a solution. He says, come into this hole with me, and you'll be safe from the falling sky. And then they go into the hole where he then eats them all. The moral of the story is something like this. Don't be so quick to get caught up in hysteria. Just because everyone says the sky is falling doesn't mean it is. It might just mean one chicken little got everyone else worked up into a fit. Moral is hysteria gives us a false desperation that leads us to foolish, self-destructive decisions. And yet despite that caution from a children's story, it seems hardly a day goes by anymore without someone somewhere saying the sky is falling and the rest of us are tempted to believe them. Turn on your TV to any news station, you'll hear a chorus of voices proclaiming the end of civilization for one reason or another. What's funny is, I don't know if you've noticed this, these days our discourse, um, in our discourse, usually both sides of the issue argue the sky is falling just for different reasons. Um, the, The basic outline of our public discourse these days goes something like this. One group says the sky is falling because of this problem, And the other group says, no, the sky is falling because of the government's response to this problem. And then when the parties switch, they switch sides on what they're arguing. Turn on the weather channel. You're likely to see them talk about how literally the sky is falling because hurricanes and tornadoes and tropical storms, this is the exciting stuff that drives ratings, and so they show the sky falling. Social media has poured gasoline on uh, the hysterical discourse. Alarm and outrage are the currency of social media. There have been a a lot of exposés over the last few years about just how it is sites like Facebook work and why it is that we see the things that we do, uh, how the algorithms uh, favor the outrageous and the incendiary and not the sober and judicious. Because hysteria means more people click and more people clicking means more ad revenue. And so there you uh, uh, you have the motive for why it is we see that which is outrageous and makes us fearful or angry. Religious people are no strangers to the sky is falling type hysteria. Uh, Actually, I think religious people might have invented it. Hardly a decade goes by without someone new claiming that the world is about to end for this or that reason. And then, on just sort of a a personal level, over the years, a a number of times, more than I can count, people have solemnly informed me of something, some piece of legislation that means I'm about to be thrown in jail, impending economic collapse, prognostications about how we're all doomed because of this or that. On an individual level, I've met people who just think the sky is falling for lots of reasons. Now, I'm not trying to dismiss or make light of anything people worry about. I'm not saying there's nothing to worry about in our world. What I do want to do this morning is to inject us with a dose of scriptural sanity. Because David wrote this psalm in a sky is falling kind of moment. Something in this psalm has happened that's thrown the nation into a panic. We'll talk about what that might have been. Voices all around David in this psalm are telling him everything is coming unhinged for this or that reason. And so, what I want us to see is what Psalm 4 does, what David does in Psalm 4 when everyone says the sky is falling. And I'll tell you the simple point of our lesson right up front. The lesson of our, of our lesson, the, the, the so what of our lesson is this disciples don't join chicken littles hysterical parade. Disciples aren't a part of it. We don't respond to hysteria the way the world does because we know things about the world that the world does not. Now, a word up front about this sermon. I have preached on this psalm before. Uh, actually, it was the very first Sunday I ever preached here. I preached on Psalm 4. I am revisiting that, this psalm today uh, because this summer I've been asked to preach on a series about Satan's tactics. And uh, my tactic that I'm going to talk about is hysteria. Uh, because, and I know of no text that nails this better than this psalm, Psalm 4. So I want to talk about it again. And it seems to me that Satan has sort of honed his ability to make us hysterical, even over the past few years, to convince us for one reason or another that the sky is falling, to make us act like and think like God is not actually in control, to make us think <clears throat> the world is about to end, not because of God's initiative, but because of something, something that we have done or something that's happening that's perhaps out of God's control. Satan makes us so focused on the urgent news of the moment that we forget about unchanging truths about God. And so what I want to do this morning is to once again call us to sobriety and sanity. So let's think about what to do, what does, what does David do when everyone in his world say the sky is falling. When everyone says the sky is falling, number one, Look to God. Verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So the uh, the superscript of this psalm says it's a psalm of David. Uh, we don't know exactly when it was written. We're, we're often in the dark about the exact circumstances. But most commentators tie it together with Psalm 3. And in Psalm 3, we do know when that was written. That was when David was deposed from his throne by his son Absalom, and the nation is really in an upheaval. No one knows, no one agrees on who the king is. But regardless of when exactly it was written, under what circumstances, I just want, just want you to see in this psalm, there is huge trouble in David's life. So in verse 1, there is great distress. In verse 2, men are seeking lies and shaming him. In verse 4, there are angry people. In verse 6, there are people doubting God's providence, asking whether God cares, whether God's going to do anything to help them. This is a psalm about the sky falling. Everyone's saying that. And so what's a disciple to do? You don't have to get past verse 1 to get some good suggestions. The first thing he does is call out to God. He says, answer me when I call. And so the first thought of the psalmist here is, is toward God. Something has happened. Maybe David's on the run because Absalom has turned the people against David. And so he says, answer me, God. What this is in verse 1 is the pray without ceasing instinct. That if you're worried about the sky falling, why not call on the God who made the sky? He's the only one who can do anything about it anyway. And so he calls out to God. That's where this all begins. And he also, in verse 1, as he calls out to God, he is also remembering He's remembering God's past deliverances. Notice he says this, You have given me relief when I was in distress. The word translated distress there most literally would be translated narrow. We would say something like this, You've helped me out of tight spots before. And then the psalm says, I call on you to do for us again what you've done so many times in the past. In the history of your people and my own personal history, he says, Be gracious to me, and hear my prayer. Because when we remember how God has come through in the past, we remind ourselves he has power and wisdom we cannot comprehend. And if God somehow brought his people through all this before, then he's perfectly capable of doing it again. It's not as if he's run out of power between the last deliverance and this one. And so when we remember those past deliverances, we're given comfort and assurance. All of this reminds me of of Philippians chapter 4, where Paul recommends prayer as an anxiety replacement. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't say don't be anxious. He gives us the answer. He says pray in your anxiety. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. In everything, give your voice to God. So, there are times when we just need to be reminded of the basics. Who made us? Whose world are we living in? Who are we talking to when we pray? What is the God we are talking to capable of? Because we believe there is a God who created and upholds all things. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. We are living in God's world. We pray to a God who when he sees the nation's rage and the rulers plot against him, Psalm 2 says he sits in heaven and he laughs. He holds them in derision. Jesus taught us the, the problem with our prayers is never that God doesn't have sufficient power. The problem with our prayers is that we don't have sufficient faith in God's power. We pray to a God who has a long history of relieving the distress of his people. And if that's true, if we actually acted like that was true, when there comes a new distress, all we do is renew our cry to God. Isn't that a better response than wringing our hands, than running around in circles saying the sky is falling, which is what usually amounts to discourse on Facebook? Look to God. When everyone says the sky is falling, look to God. Number two everyone says the sky is falling, don't listen to faithless voices. I think there's some interesting dynamics here. When you kind of uh, imagine who it is that's saying these lines, it's, it, the, the psalm comes to life. So I want you to notice this. The first and last verses of this psalm, verses 1 and 8, is a direct address to God. Uh, imagine like a prayer. But everything in between verses 1 and 8 uh, seems to be addressed to, to one group or another among David's countrymen. He seems to be addressing different groups of people. It's almost as if in verse 1 he has to interrupt his prayer and he has to speak some sense into the people around him. And so think about this, verse 2. Notice he, he addresses men now. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And this is his answer to those lie-believing people. No. No that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now, I think the context of Absalom's coup makes good sense of these verses. So the story goes that that Absalom, David's son, had convinced many in Israel that actually Absalom was the the right heir to the throne. Absalom was God's chosen king now and not David anymore. This was in the aftermath aftermath of David's sins with Bathsheba. And the argument was probably something like this. David's sins meant God has abandoned him as his anointed. David is really, the, the the argument would go, David is sort of in the same boat as Saul was before. Saul turned his back on God and God turned his back on Saul. And now David turned his back on God, so so God turned his back on David. David's a failed and washed up king and I'm the man. You should obey now. That's what, Solomon, yeah. sorry, that's what Absalom was saying. And so I think we can read verse 2 as David interrogating those who have believed Absalom's lies. Verse 2 are the people who have become Chicken Little's hysterical parade. And David says, why do you continue to listen to faithless voices? Why do you have such an appetite for lies and conspiracies? Why are you so eager to turn the honor of God's anointed king into shame? Why do you want what Absalom says to be true? In verse 3, David urges his brethren, and perhaps himself a little bit too, he urges them to sift through all the lies and hysteria and remember promises God made which are always true. Verse 3 again, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. David says, no matter what the headlines say, God is still in relationship with his people. God still hears the prayers of his people. God is still faithful to his promises to his people. The message is turn away from the panic and turn toward the God of covenant. And this isn't just some psychological trick to manage the stress. He is giving here objective truth. In verse 3, what he is talking about is the nature and character of God, the kind of God he is and always is. Verse 3, he's saying these are the truest things in the world these unchanging facts about God. And so altogether what he's saying in verse 2 is turn away from the world's words and in verse 3 toward God's words. Turn away from the lies in verse 2, the unchanging, promise-keeping, prayer-answering God in verse 3. There comes a time when we have to step away from the chorus of voices declaring the sky is falling and we have to say verse 3, the Lord knows me. And the Lord hears me, and if those things are true, then I've got everything I need. And so Absalom's supporters can keep spouting their nonsense, but David says, I'm going to be okay as long as God hears when I call him. Pundits can keep making their doomsday predictions. Charlatans can keep prophesying Armageddon. mongers can keep making projections about the growth of Islam. Atheists can keep asserting the death of Christianity. But do you know what's always true? The Lord has set apart the godly for himself, and the Lord hears when I call him. And all the lies and hysteria in the world cannot change that fact. It's a really interesting story. I won't ask you to turn. I'll just reference it. It's, it's uh, told in a couple of places, 2 Kings 18 and Isaiah 36 to 92. But the story goes that Assyria's mighty army has marched all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. They've, they've run through the northern kingdom, and they reach Jerusalem, and the army has surrounded the city. Jerusalem, by any, uh, by any uh, military tactician's evaluation, Jerusalem stands no chance. And so Assyria, in, a, in an act of sort of semi-mercy, uh, lest they have to overrun the city, they, they offer him uh, terms of surrender. And they send out a chief officer, an Assyrian officer, to present the alternatives to Israel. He basically says this, either you all surrender and come with us as our slaves, or we'll besiege the city, drag this out, starve you out, kill the rest of you who don't starve to death, and then, then the uh, enslavement will, will begin. Those are the options. And we're actually told he comes out saying all of this in Hebrew. They send a Hebrew-speaking Assyrian so that all the people in the city will hear and understand the taunts and, 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 all, and all quake in their boots. And, and he's making an argument. He's saying why it is they should surrender and why it is they shouldn't trust their king. He says, don't think your God will save you. You know, lots of other cities we've conquered. They trusted their gods and we conquered all them. Why should your God be any different? And then he says this, you know, your king Hezekiah has really hampered your ability to defend yourself. You You have divested yourself of much divine power because Hezekiah tore down all your idols. See, the pagan Assyrians assumed that Hezekiah's reforms, which was to tear down the idols, which God approved of, he assumed this weakened Israel's power because to the pagan mind, less idols means less gods and less gods means less divine power to help you out. And so he's doing his calculation. He's giving his argument so that all of Israel will fear you all don't have much divine power. You only got one God on your side. We got a few dozen. So let me ask, what would have happened to Jerusalem had they listened to faithless Assyria? Had they swallowed down those lies? See, we have to be able to say, you know, I I know you're selling all this sky is falling hysteria. But at a certain point, we have to say to the the Assyrian officer, you know, you're just kind of ignorant. You don't know the one true God and you don't know his power. The God I know hears me and and I trust him. And so I'm not going to listen to you, Assyria. I'm going to get busy trusting and obeying my God. You know, maybe part of our problem, when, when we're wringing our hands all the time, when we're all so fearful and hysterical, maybe part of the problem is that we just have way more contact with faithless voices than we do with God, and we take them a whole lot more seriously than we do God. We listen to Assyrian generals more than we listen to Hezekiah and Isaiah. Or we take Absalom more seriously than we take David. What would be some modern equivalents of that? Well, it might look like this. It might look like, The fact that we just watch the news a whole lot more than we read our Bible. And we communicate via Facebook way more than we communicate via prayer. And we talk about politics way more than we talk about God. And we worry and we wring our hands way more than we pray. And if that's what we're doing, David would tell us, it's no wonder you think the sky is falling. When everyone says the sky is falling, you better get busy not listening to all the people who are saying it. Don't listen to faithless voices. Number four. Number three. When everyone says the sky is falling, encourage your brethren. So, in verses two and three, I think the way to read it is verses two and three, David is addressing those who have swallowed down the lies of Absalom, denigrating David. I'm the man. People say, yes, we believe that. I think in verses four and five, David addresses a different group of people. He addresses people who are still loyal to him, people who are loyal to David. And yet, still have an equally unhealthy response to all this upheaval. So if he addresses Absalom's supporters in verses 2 and 3, I think we should read 4 and 5 as David addressing his own supporter. Verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So if I'm right, this is, this is what David is saying, something like this. You know, loyal supporters, Absalom is evil. And he, does, he doesn't have a claim to the throne. And yes, we are in a real mess as a nation. But, but the, the one here who has been the primary victim of all this injustice is now the one calming down his own supporters. And he says to them, you know what, all that's true. And you can be angry, but do not sin. Calm down. Yes, it's upsetting and scary. And you may have every right to be angry about what's happened, but it's not an excuse to sin. Just take a deep breath. Do nothing impulsively. Here's what you need to do. You need to worship God. You need to recenter your heart on Him and your trust in Him. That when it seems like the sky is falling, we also need to turn to one another with words like these. Verse 4 again, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Before you work yourself into a frenzy because the sky is falling, pause. Don't say anything. Be silent for a minute. Go to bed. Go to the place where you can't be running around. Go to the place where you have to sit down and be still. And then sleep on it and pray about it before you post that diatribe on Facebook. I don't think he said that part. But what this is in verse 4 is an injunction against impulse. Because if you calm down and think for a minute, the initial hysterical feelings tend to fade. We get a little more perspective. That's what David wants us to get here. Continuing in verse 5, he says this, Offer right sacrifices. He encourages them to worship. Go to worship. Don't stop worshiping because you're worried about this or that. If anything, you need worship now more than ever. Reminds me a lot of Psalm 73, which is a very well-known psalm. Psalm 73 is a psalm where a guy named Asaph records how he's worrying himself sick over the good fortune of the wicked. And the world looks upside down to him. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. He's eaten up with how wicked people have it so good and how terrible things go for him and others who serve God. He says, I do all this stuff for God. It seems all, it's all for nothing. But this whole psalm turns when he says this. He says this, until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. David is looking for the same sort, of, same sort of repentance. When you're eaten up with worry, when you're convinced the sky is fallen, go worship, go offer your sacrifices, because I guarantee your perspective will change. Take your worries to the only one who could do anything about them. And then he says this at the end of verse 5, put your trust in the Lord, put your trust in the Lord. I don't know how everything we're worried about is going to work out. I'm not in this sermon acting like a Pollyanna about the world's issues and saying, well, there's nothing to worry about. It's all going to be fine. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, please don't forget to do the most important thing. Put your trust in the Lord. God's the only one who can do anything about it anyway. He's the one who's going to right every wrong. He's the one who's going to save. He's the one who's going to judge. Don't forget to trust Him. So in verses 2 and 3, he addresses those caught up in the hysteria. But in verses 4 and 5, he addresses those who are outraged about all of the hysteria. You've got the hysterics, and you've got the outraged about the hysterics. And David has a word for both parties. He has a word for the pro-Absalom party, obviously wrong because they believe lies, but David also has a word for the pro-David party because they failed to put God on his throne every bit as much. We need our brethren when it seems like the sky is falling. Because at times like that, we tend to develop worldviews without a sovereign God on top. We need to be able to encourage one another with reminders like these and be encouraged by others reminding us to say what David says. Pause and calm down. You can be outraged about sin, but you can't participate in it. Let's worship together. Let's remember that God is still God in every crisis and every upheaval. Which brings us to number four. Fourth and finally, delight in God. So, if David dealt with opponents in verses 2 and 3, and if he dealt with outraged supporters in verses 4 and 5, I believe he now addresses perhaps a third group in verse 6. I would imagine them as sort of like those who have stood apart from all this political back and forth. They've come to believe the sky is falling, but instead of participating in all the upheaval and all the uh, the, the cultural Instead, they just sort of resign themselves to doom and say, we're doomed, this is the end, we can't do anything, and they're just in despair. Verse 6, there are many who say, so here's many who are saying this, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. So here's what the despairing are saying. Verse 7, David responds with his own words. You, speaking to God, you have put more joy in my heart than they, the despairers, have. When their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. So can you hear the worry, that the hysteria in verse 6? They say, who's going to help us? What can be done? Is God even there? They've swallowed down everything the men in verse 2 are dishing out. And they just become defeatists. They expect and anticipate doom. David says there are many saying things like this. But does David share their defeatism? Verse 7 is one of my favorite verses in all the psalms. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. He compares the joy God has put in his heart to the joy the faithless have in times of plenty. The, joy, the amount of joy David has in his heart in this awful time to the joy they have in the best of times. He compares their, their levels of joy. And David says, I am full of more joy now in my exile On the run for my life, I have more joy in my heart now than those despairing ones have after a bountiful harvest. I still have more joy than that. How can that be the case? David has a peace and joy that transcend his immediate circumstances. That's what he's getting at. His joy does not depend on how things are going in his life or in the world at this moment. That's not where he derives his joy from. David's joy is not fickle, on again, off again. Good news day, bad news day. Good news day, feel happy. Bad news day, feel sad. His joy doesn't depend on the circumstances or the headlines. David's joy is anchored in a relationship with a God who does not change. That's how verse 7 can be true. This is exactly what Paul said his heart is and what he strives for. He says this in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing hunger, uh, plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says, Joy and contentment are not based on the amount of grain and wine I have right now. It's not based on the, on the happenings of the Roman Senate. It's not dependent on my current living situation. I remind you, Paul's current living situation in Philippians 4 was prison. My joy is not based on those things, my joy is based on Jesus. And as long as God is God, as long as Jesus is Lord, I can have more joy in my heart now when the sky is falling than the faithless have when they're prospering. The question they're raising, David and Paul are raising, is what is your anchor? What is the thing that gives you peace and joy and confidence in your life? What is it? Because if it's the amount of grain and wine you have, then your joy will go away the second there's a drought. And if your joy depends on the news cycle you'll probably never have another joyful day again. You won't have any real joy, real peace, or real contentment until you can truthfully say what David says. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Which brings us to verse 8, the final verse of the psalm. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So in a setting of hysteria, the sky is falling, lie believing enemies in verse 2. Outraged, impulsive supporters in verse 4. Despairing defeatists in verse 6. How does the psalm end? What does David do? He says, I lie down and I go to sleep. Why? How? For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I don't wait until every problem in the world has been squared away before I'm able to sleep well. All I do is I work on centering all my hope on God. And when I manage that, I have everything I need for a peaceful night of sleep. In faith and trust in God, there is comfort and rest. In faithless consumptions of the world's voices is only worry and restlessness. Only when we delight in God like David did can we sleep like David did. Only when our lives are consumed with God will we find real joy and real peace that passes understanding in every circumstance of life. So as we wrap up, let me stress, I'm not trying to diminish all the things that there are to worry about in the world. There are plenty of them, many of them perfectly valid. There are things to worry about. What I'm saying is what we don't have to do is to join Chicken Little's hysterical parade. We don't have to choose between either being hysterical about the world's problems being outraged about those who are hysterical about the world's problems, or resigning ourselves to despair about the whole thing, which are the three bad options in this psalm. God's people respond the way David does. We respond to worry in a totally different way than the faithless do. As soon as you put God on his throne, as soon as you remember God hears when I call him, as soon as I remember that this God puts more joy in my heart in famine than they have in abundance, as soon as those things are real to you, the world starts to look like a very different place. So my question to you this morning is, who are you listening to? Whose words about the state of the world are the most real? Do you take most seriously? What group of people is reinforcing your worldview the most? What is your real source of joy? And what has to happen in order for you to get a good night's sleep? In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Can you say that? Or is your heart torn up with all the world's worries? Maybe there's someone here this morning who needs to come and needs to repent of the sin of hysteria, of the sin of believing the world's lies, of mocking all the world's lies, of despairing about the world. Maybe you have not centered your hope on God and you need help doing that. Whatever your spiritual need, come forward right now as we stand and sing.
1: Christ, the Redeemer, past will pass over you when I see the blood.